Hello and welcome to Sisterhood. We are so happy to reconvene in the presence of the Lord. We are in lesson three of our James curriculum. We know that for the first two weeks of this semester, we looked at James chapter one. Today we're going to begin James chapter two and we'll be covering verses one through 13. I'd like to start out by just camping out on the first two words of this chapter. James 2.1 simply says, My brethren. My brethren. Some translations would say, My brothers and sisters. Remember now that James wrote this letter to believing people, to Jewish Christians who'd been scattered. That is, that they were living outside of Palestine. They had spread out. And in the New King James Version, the word brethren is used 14 times in this relatively brief letter. And you might wonder, well, what does this matter? Why is this significant? By directly and repeatedly addressing his recipients again and again, James is really fostering a degree of unity. He's conveying the message, I'm talking specifically to you. He's creating a friendly tone in his writing and suggesting that they are all members of the same household, the same family, the same they all share the same common identity, if you will. Wouldn't you agree with me that inserting someone's name in a dialogue promotes intimacy in that dialogue? For example, if I'm having a difficult conversation with my husband, Keith, I will address him personally while I'm talking to him about the matter. I'll use his name, right? draw him into what I'm saying. I may pause and even say, honey, but it's a means of expressing my love while speaking the truth. It keeps us united, and after almost 30 years of being married, which is sort of hard to believe because I'm only 35 years old, you know, I don't know how that happens. Um, but after, this, after a longevity of that sort, I've come to believe that communicating in that way, drawing the listener and my husband in, fosters unity, and unity is a very good thing, very important thing, isn't it? By constantly reminding the recipients of this letter that they are his brethren, James is just doing that. He's bringing up unity. So as you continue to read this week to week to week throughout the course of this semester, I'm going to trust that the, Lord, the Lord's going to bring to your remembrance when you see the word brother, brother or brethren or brothers and sisters, you're going to be reminded that he's speaking to a particular group on purpose. The definition of the word brethren is, first of all, plural of brother, but one who shares a common ancestry an allegiance, character, or purpose with another or other. So let's not overlook his intentionality in remaining connected to those he exhorts. In fact, let's even include ourselves as the recipients of this letter. It was intended then, but it's intended still today in 2020. Amen? Amen. James writes from a heart genuinely filled with God's love. And in fact, one of the things that God's love would have God's people to know is partiality is not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. So let's examine the definition of this word. It's not one that we use too often. Partiality is favoritism. It's bias. It's conditional preference. The word denotes a biased judgment which gives respect to rank, position, or circumstances instead of considering intrinsic conditions. So now apply this to this beginning portion of James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. My brethren, there it is, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. 
For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, but say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Have you not shown favoritism? Have you not shown bias? Have you not given conditional preference? Haven't you, in fact, given respect to rank and position? Haven't you given respect to circumstances instead of intrinsic conditions? What James is saying is that those who put their faith in Jesus just simply cannot favor one person over another, ever. We're not to be swayed by how a person looks. We're not to be swayed by how she dresses or how she carries herself. Believers are to value that which is intrinsic, internal, not external, like rank and job title and position. Hmm. The leaders of this ministry at Sisterhood do their very best to be impartial, that is to avoid favoritism and bias. And I want you to know that before every semester, leaders get together and pray about who should sit at which tables. The Holy Spirit brings to mind certainly certain factors for consideration, diversity of age. We want there to be a diverse smattering of ages sitting at your table so that iron can sharpen iron. There's also consideration to life season, but never are things like wealth or job title or fashion preferences considered. We just, it wouldn't be, it just wouldn't be right. Those biases would be showing partiality and your sisterhood leaders want nothing to do with that. Understand that. I think it's really easy to read a passage like we just did and just flippantly kind of think, you know what, I'm good. I know better than to show favoritism. But lest we dismiss ourselves too quickly from recognizing our own biased thinking, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to invite you to consider some scenarios with me. All right, I'm going to throw you three scenarios today. I'd like you to picture them in your mind and consider my rhetorical questions from your personal vantage point, your personal experience. So the first one is this. Imagine that your son is a starter on the basketball team. Is it easy for you to value and encourage and affirm him and the other four starters and then overlook and underappreciate the commitment of the second string guys who come as faithfully as the top five? Hmm? Do you elevate that first string group, the ones who get to play most of the game, but forget that without that practice squad, there would be no one prepared for game day? Hmm. Second scenario, week after week and year after year, your garbage is collected and hauled very far away by a faithful employee of your sanitation service. And on rare occasion throughout weeks and weeks and years and years of time, you undergo surgery with a reputable surgeon at your hospital. Now, knowing that the garbage man and the surgeon are both important, and they're both responsible for things that impact your life in a big way. Have you expressed gratitude to both of these people? Told them how thankful you are for their service. 
The third scenario, imagine this. You are ready to celebrate your birthday and your family plans to take you into the city for a nice dinner. And while walking to the restaurant, a homeless woman kindly approaches you and asks if she might borrow your cell phone to make just a quick call. And you explain, I'm so late for our reservation. I'm so sorry. If we had more time, I just have to be on my way. But a block later, you run into a friend and you begin to reminisce. Fifteen minutes go by and you enter the restaurant in a tardy fashion, telling yourself that any level-headed minded person would have done the same thing. I share these things because I've experienced these things. And they're very real. It's important that we examine our hearts where the area of partiality is concerned. Because allowing favoritism and giving special attention to people because of their social status or their particular position or their wealth or their rank is really, really wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong for several reasons, and I want to highlight three of them. First of all, favoring rich or influential people is wrong because, quite honestly, it stems from an evil motive. Knowingly, and most of the time, unknowingly, we do these things hoping to gain something personally in the end. Let me explain this by referencing these three scenarios. The first one plays out like this. I favor the basketball starters because in so doing, it's likely that my son is going to benefit as well. He will receive accolades and security and probably popularity, maybe even preferential treatment from other families or from staff at school. Being part of this culture, or part of the group of this culture that we all say is an elite group of starting players. Quite honestly, maybe off a little bit unrelated, but somewhat related, is that it makes me just feel good to be the mom of the starter, and I like it. I like that reputation. The second scenario might wrap up like this. I thank the surgeon for a successful operation because, truthfully, she helped me get back up on my feet and do my thing, take care of my body. And in my mind, I'm way more important than garbage sitting out on the street corner. Plus, it's easy for me to thank the surgeon because I already have a pre-booked appointment with her after the surgery, six weeks out, right? On the other hand, to wait the arrival of a garbage truck, look out the front window, when is he coming? When is he coming? Or run out there in the freezing cold of January in order to thank personally someone who comes faithfully every week. That's just inconvenient. It takes a lot of my time, and I just don't want to do that. Hmm. Third scenario, the truth is I'm willing to be late for a dinner reservation because it feels so good to talk to a friend, to laugh, to be encouraged by her words, to be filled up with her kindness. But it's awkward to talk to somebody that I don't know, to stand next to a homeless person. And I just prefer not to be awkward. Hallelujah. Are we having a good time so far? <laughs> hmm. Thank you, Lord. There's victory in Jesus. If we could just think about these honest appraisals of these situations, we'd all be able to say, we notice there's a lot of me, my, I. These pronouns are used again and again. Can you hear selfishness? 
Yes, partiality has its root in pride and selfishness. The second reason why favoring rich or influential people is wrong is because it doesn't reflect the very character of our God. You see, our Heavenly Father doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. We know this story. Samuel was led by God to identify which of Jesse's sons would be king over Israel. And Samuel, the man chosen by God, because of the appearance of Eliab, assumed that Eliab would be God's selection. But look how the Lord corrects his partiality. God says, Samuel, do not look on his appearance. Do not look on his height, the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God may have said, listen, Samuel, I don't really make my selections based on outward appearance. I'm not concerned about how tall or how buff this guy is. It's not about that. I'm looking for what's on the inside, and I see on the inside of David a man after my heart. Think about it. David was chosen. He was the youngest. We could surmise that he was probably then the physically weakest, and yet he was the one God chose. Why? Because of what was in his heart. Let's be those who look on the heart. Look on the heart like our daddy. The third reason why favoring rich or influential people is wrong is because it doesn't stem from the love of God. The love of God is unconditional. Say unconditional. Big definition. It means without condition. <laughs> it's just there, there are no conditions to God's love. It's not dependent on anything that the recipient might do or not do. And Romans 5.5 5 tells us that his love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Put your hand on your heart. I just want you to close your eyes for a moment and imagine yourself a chosen vessel of God. He's already equipped you with the love, the agape love that is required to be a blessing to other people. That agape love is unconquerable, I'm sorry, unconquerable benevolence. That is undefeatable goodness. It's the goodwill that always seeks the highest good for the other person. This is what's in us. It's self-giving love that gives freely without asking anything in return. And it's love that does not consider the worth of its object. God's love resides in us. Consider the privilege that it is to have his love poured in your heart and that he would look at you and consider you a vessel of his love. You, you got to think about this. What if, what if the people that you encounter have never experienced God's love. And he's divinely orchestrated your steps to be the one who pours his love into their lives. Mm, what a privilege. What a privilege. Where his love flows freely, partiality cannot exist. You see, 1 John 4.16 tells us that God is love. And because of that, he never engages in partiality. In other words, God does not play favorites. Hallelujah. James teaches this truth by posing some questions. Let's hear what he says in the next several verses, five through seven. Listen, my beloved brethren, I'm talking to you. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you, you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? 
We see here that indeed there are some people who have nothing in this natural realm, no riches, but they're loaded, spiritually speaking. They have more peace and joy and inner contentment than those who own mansions and make millions could ever dream of knowing. And we might in our intellect look and expect super wealthy people who look like they have it all together to be trustworthy and to be honoring toward others only to find that they are conniving and hurtful and downright mean. Hmm. Labeling a, a person poor or rich by this world's standards will never indicate his spiritual condition. This is what James is telling us. Do not assume, friends. Do not assume that because someone is outwardly poor, she's lacking somehow in faith. And likewise, it's wrong to assume that someone with a big bank account is rich in hers. Here's a key point. I want you to take this home with you to never lose sight of this. God deems all people who love him, even the poor, everyone. There are no people excluded to be heirs of his kingdom. He deems all people who love him to be heirs of his kingdom. So heirship has nothing to do with financial condition and everything to do with heart condition. To those who love him, he avails entrance to the kingdom of God. Hear this. He doesn't offer his kingdom based upon social status or wealth or race or appearance or anything else. He does not waste his time on those sorts of distinctions, nor should we. What matters to our Father God, Abba, Daddy, is that all people are fashioned in his image. And because of that, he values all people equally. Can you say amen? That's the one thing. They're fashioned in his image. And so they all matter the same. The master artist looks at his vessel, each one of his vessels, and he calls them his masterpieces. Not his discard or his mistake. He fashions every single one with special and unique characteristics, with gifts and talents. He looks at them and he sees purpose. He looks at them and he sees potential. I've, I love to consider this. If I could interview the Father God right now, bring him up in bodily form to stand right here so that you could watch him with your eyes. And I'd say to him, Daddy, will you tell us who of these women here are your favorites? Which one is your favorite? Which one? This is what I believe. We might hear him say something like this. He'd say, oh, that Amanda, she is my favorite. She is so hardworking. She loves people so beautifully. She operates in the gift of faith, this one. Truly a treasure. Entrust her concerns to me with the greatest of ease. What a beauty. Definitely, definitely my favorite. <laughs> Kathy, she's my favorite. Oh, what a storehouse of wisdom. What an encourager she is to her friends and her family. What a blessing. A lover of souls. My Kathy. Yes, 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 yes. She's my favorite. Nancy. It's Nancy. My favorite. Wow, does she communicate my truth? The lens that she looks at things with is such a beautiful lens of hopefulness. She puts her faith in me. Despite the difficulty, my Nancy, look at her. She's my favorite. And you, 
and you, and you, and her, and her, and her, and her, and her. And he would name every single one and list off the attributes that he sees when he looks at you. Why? Because you are his favorite. Are you hearing the heart of your father? Hallelujah. This is how it is. He doesn't show partiality. He just loves us all the same. All of us. His favorite. In 1998, I know that's a really long time ago now. It feels like five minutes ago. But in 1998, my husband and I had one child, Noah. He was almost two. And we took a little trip to Columbus, Ohio to visit a church. And when we got to that church, we realized that the pastor was pouring this very message into his congregation. It was part of a series. And they had flung up banners across the top of every entrance into the sanctuary. And so I brought a picture to share with you. We stood beneath that. And I don't know that you can see, but we are smiling from ear to ear, Noah and I, realizing that this is really true. You are God's favorite. Something happened to me then in 1998. That truth locked itself in my heart and everything changed as a result. And not only that, what's more is that I began to see that you are his favorite too. It's not just me. That's a revelation we each need to get. But also we need to look at each other as being God's favorite. It's a life-changing revelation. I've been praying for you to have that experience, to be able to look at anyone that comes across your path to see that he or she is indeed God's favorite. Hallelujah. Because here's the thing, when we really view others through this lens of God's love, we begin to see that showing partiality, hmm, it's not just an unfriendly thing that we ought to try to avoid doing. It's sin. It's sin. James 2, 8 through 11 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, bias, favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Verse 8, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, it's called the royal law because it's the supreme command given by the king himself. It's the highest law of the land. It's intended to be that which governs all human relationships. And by showing partiality, by showing favoritism because of someone's rank or position or their wealth and all these things we've talked about, let's be honest, we're not loving them. We're not living in accordance with God's will. We're really sinning. I want you to know, though, again, there is victory in Christ Jesus. This isn't a time of condemnation. It's a time of conviction. It's a time of revelation. So you can partner with the Lord to allow his love to flow through your vessel. We don't need to walk around and say, I will not be partial. I will not have favorites. I will not be biased. We must stop focusing on what not to do and instead begin to focus upon his amazing love. We just choose to make God, loving God and loving other people our highest aim. Does this sound familiar? This is what Laura taught us last week. See, if we love God completely and we love others unselfishly, then what happens that is that the Holy Spirit aligns our hearts with the instructions and the commands of the Lord. It's not about us doing. It's about what He does in us to get our hearts 
in union with his. The bottom line is that when we intentionally set our hearts upon his love, God gets everything else in order. I don't know how it happens. It's miraculous, really, and glorious. Romans 13.10 tells us that love does no harm to its neighbors, and thus love is the fulfillment of the law. Love. It's by this law, the law of love and liberty, that we are going to be judged. James goes on to say in verses 12 and 13, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now I want you to understand that since James is speaking to Christians, these verses are not referring to a condemning judgment, a judgment that will determine eternal destiny. That's secured when you get born again, when you give your life to Jesus. The judgment that James is talking about is a judgment that will evaluate our words. It's going to evaluate our actions and our motives so as to determine the degree of the reward that Jesus gives to us. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we learn that we will stand before him and be judged of both the good and the evil that we do upon this earth. So again, this law of liberty is really a reference to the love of God. We receive power from Jesus and freedom to obey this law. It's not a we can't, it's a we can. Hallelujah. His Holy Spirit is alive in us. And he provides us everything we need to fulfill God's desires in this aim. In other words, he enables us to love well. So really, it just comes down to us making the choice to love well. We have the capacity now we choose to love because ultimately our lives will be measured by how well we exemplify God's love. So, what do we say to the hopeless? What do we say to the hurting? What are our words conveying to them? How do we treat the poor, the dirty? How do we exhibit love to the outcast? And I want you to think beyond a paradigm because I know when I say these words, you might imagine someone on a street corner. I'm talking about people in this room, the outcast, the one who just showed up, who wasn't sure if she dare show up, who wasn't sure where she would sit or if anyone would greet her or talk to her. I'm talking about the visitors on Sunday morning. I'm talking about the people at the PTO meeting. I'm talking about everyone. We can all be the outcast at one time or another, right? How do we treat those less fortunate than us? It works both ways, really. What about those more fortunate than us? Those with less education? What about the old man at the grocery who I encountered yesterday who was walking so slowly in front of me? How do I treat him? Hmm. Were we kind and compassionate and merciful yesterday? In the final verse of this passage, James tells us that if we desire God's mercy to be poured out on us, then we need to be certain to live our lives pouring it out upon others. Showing others mercy is easier when we keep the, what that word means on the forefront. Mercy is compassion. It's kindness. Beneficence. I learned that word studying for this. I like that word. I'm going to say it. Beneficence. An outward manifestation of pity. This word mercy is used of God. God is merciful. 
It's used of Jesus. Jesus is merciful. And in the Bible, it's also used to describe men, women. We have the capacity to be merciful. Sisters, consider the many ways that God has displayed his beneficence, his goodness in your life. Do you take time to note his goodness? Have you whispered up a thanks yet to him even today? He's been good to you already. He's been good to me already. You thank him for his provision, his help, his companionship. Every day he's performing acts of kindness. Every day he's extending charity to us, his beloved masterpieces. And he wants us to do the same for others, for all others. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these women. I thank you, God, for my sisters in the Lord. I thank you, Lord. We love being your daughters. We love hearing your truth, God, your voice spoken through your word. God, I pray that you empower us. We tap into your capacity within us to show no partiality as we hold faith in you, Jesus. May we reflect your character and release your love, God, toward all people everywhere. Help us, Lord, to remember that each and every person is your favorite masterpiece, made in your image and intended to be an heir of your wonderful kingdom. Father, continue to give us revelation of this. Continue, Lord, your work. Teach us what it means to live our lives, knowing that we will be judged by your law of love and liberty. In Jesus' mighty name, we say thank you, God, for your work in our lives. Thank you, Lord. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.